Well, hello again. Greetings. A few new faces from last time. We, uh, the last session we, we started, um, Brother Nathan began us in this passage in Nehemiah these, of these three separate days and this process, this, this great work of God amongst his people. Day one, they saw the Lord as, as one people, one man. Uh, one voice. I, I was uh, blessed uh, a, a week or so ago by, uh, ago by a verse in Exodus 24 that the people stood at the foot of the mountain before the Lord and in one voice they responded. Same similar thoughts. The, this idea of oneness. And so we, we, we spent some time considering just this aspect of oneness. What, what is it? It's Again, not just fellowship, not just unity, but it's a it's a it's a single mind. It's a one mind. It's it's a one action, a single action, single intent. Um, this 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 state of oneness, and so uh, we looked in the scriptures. We looked at in John seventeen where where uh, this oneness is uh, you and I and our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Godhead. Um, there is a there is a a dual aspect in a sense. It's mysterious. It and actually it's very similar to uh, the Godhead himself. The Lord Himself would say, "I and the Father are one," and 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 the Lord Jesus and the Spirit are one, and the three of them together are one. It's very similar that you and I are one, and. I and the head, the Lord Jesus, are one, and we are one together, one body, one head. And so we, we, we finished by looking at and considering this idea of just oneness being this, this desperate cry of the people of God in the final hour as, as this world is, is going darker and darker. This is the need of the hour, that we would be one. Again, that, that, that line in, in uh, Genesis 11, the Lord says, is anything they, the people are one they are one people they are one language is there nothing they can't do and that was a that was a that was a bad deal god had to confound their language because that was apart from god but us entering into this single oneness there's tremendous power in that again i i hope that in the last days that that would be said of the church is there nothing that we can't do being one in the body and the head and so the great desire, the great need of the hour, it's what the Lord prayed moments before being betrayed in John 17, that they would be one, that they would be one, one in us, I in them. And so we looked at growing, as it were, like a relationship, a husband and wife, growing in this oneness with our head. We considered Ephesians chapter 5, our responsibility of the bride, what, what we what faith is always a responsibility, right? Faith is an action. It's not, it's not passive. And so our response of faith, we saw that single eye, take your eyes off the world, the glitz and the glamour of the world, the temptations that are all around, we must fight. It's no accident that Ephesians 5 comes right before Ephesians chapter 6. Take up the full armor. Get ready for the fight. And the fight is... I think I said this last time, every work of God in the scriptures, anywhere where you think that the Bible is telling you to work, it's all faith. And it's the faith to see him in spite of all the smoke screens around you. Fight. And so it's that single eye. From that is this, that produces this heart of adoration, this burning heart for him of, of worship, of remembrance, of thanksgiving. And then ultimately that leads to a, a, a heart of submission. And that kind of submission is easy. When you are, when you are heart on fire for him, that, that submission is so easy. It's, it's willingly, it's joyfully. Because you know, you've learned and tasted, this is the best of life. And so, so we considered this just short briefly, I mean very briefly, this aspect of, of growing in this oneness with the head. And then ultimately we saw that Christ, as the bridegroom, he'll do everything else. The work is his. But there is a responsibility on our part. Isn't that always how it works in, in the salvation story? There is an aspect of responsibility, and then Christ does all the work. All the work. What I want to consider now, with the time we have, is growing in oneness together. That's, that's interesting. Um, another mystery and what I want to do is I want to take you all the way back, way, 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 way back. I love 
types and the old, like the old, like the tabernacle. I can study the tabernacle over and over and over. The feasts, I can study over and over and over. It's funny because I, I've been a believer for 23 years and that has always been a passion of mine. And as most of you know, now God is asking me to go and my wife to go to Israel. And I look back and go, isn't that funny? The Lord, the passion that he has grown in my heart is the old, to take the Old Testament and show Christ. And when I spent a month in Israel in September going alongside some of those Jews and showing them, like, the, this, is my, this is what I love to do. Look at this. Look at Christ right here. And they would go, oh, I've never seen that before. So one of the great passions in my heart are the types. I think the Old Testament types, they just cause our Bible to unlock for us. And so I want to go all the way back in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 24. And I want to consider one piece of furniture that was in that old tent. Here we are today. As I was getting ready for this, I thought, we're going to have a tent meeting. Well, we're going to go back to the tent and we're going to look at God's original tent Maybe not the original. I think Abraham one, had one that was, was before this one. But this was the big tent. And in this tent, just for a, a quick preview or a, just a summary, I, I would assume most of us have a little bit of an understanding. Maybe not. But this tent, in this story, God created after he brings his people out of slavery, out of Egypt. I said last session that the heart of God has always been to dwell with his people. That is the very nature of God. Oh, that I could plead with you. If you don't know him today, God is not a God of you bow to me and you serve. He's saying, I want to dwell and I want to know you. I want to be with you. And it's the whole story of from one cover to the other of, of this scripture. And God creates this tent. He sets up this system that the tent was right in the middle of his people. And after it all gets done and gets set up, the very glory of God, the presence of God comes down and it takes up residence right in the middle of that camp. And God dwelled with man. In spite of the fact that man sinned, we see in the book of Genesis that, that man sinned, he rebelled against God. And because of that, death came into the world. And because of death, separation from a holy perfect God there was separation now and for 1500 years the story of the world go read it Genesis 1 to 11 oh it's a terrible terrible part of the book death 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 reigned Paul says and God creates this tent it was a picture it was just a it was just a a little passion play what we enjoy now in Christ and this tent had basically two rooms. If we took this room, let's see, which way are we pointed? Which way is east? Is it that way? So we're going to say this is the, the doorway of our tent. To the east was always the direction that uh, this tent was to face. And the back one-third of this tent, there was a curtain that always hung. It was always there. And no one was allowed into that room. And inside of that room, there was what was called the ark the testimony of God. And outside, in the two-thirds of the eastern side of this tent, along the north wall, would be what was called the table of showbread. That's what we're going to consider. Up against this curtain that hung, this veil, this beautiful opulent curtain, stood what was called the altar of incense, the golden altar. And on the south wall, there was a, a lampstand, a golden lampstand. And this tent, if you stood on the inside of this thing, oh, it would have been amazing. Out in the wilderness, out in the desert, out in the sands of the Sinai Peninsula. And you step inside of this tent and the walls were all wood boards, but they were overlaid with gold, a polished gold. Now think about that picture. You walk into here and these polished gold walls with this seven, uh, seven lit can uh, candlestick that stood right here. I don't know if any of you have ever been to like the fair where they have like the mirror rooms, right? And you stand in there and it looks like you're, you're like staring off into eternity. Those mirrors just keep reflecting off themselves and off themselves. It would have been a beautiful sight. The, the top of this tent, there was a covering that had per white, purple, blue, and scarlet needlework with these cherubim woven into it. The same similar picture on this veil right here. And you would have walked into this thing and the light would have just reflected off of these, these mirrored walls. Oh, it was a picture of heaven. Heaven on earth, actually. And so we walk in and it was an invitation 
for the priest. Only the priest could come into this place right here. It wasn't for the commoners. It wasn't for the world. They were outside. There was a, a courtroom out there that that's as far as they could go. This was, in, this was an invitation for the priest to come in here. And they were to serve always, daily, before the Lord in this place. And so I want to just read with you. See, we're talking about this oneness of the body. And you go, Josh, where are you going with this? Read with me in Exodus chapter 25, verse number 23. From there, we're going to go to Leviticus 24. But we read this. You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold and make a molding of gold around it. You shall make a rim around it a handbreadth wide, a handbreadth wide, and a molding of gold around the rim. And you shall make for it four rings of gold and fasten the rings to the four corners at its four legs. Close to the frame, the rings shall lie as holders for the poles to carry the table. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And the table shall be carried with these. And you shall make its plates and dishes for incense and its flagons and bowls with which to pour drink offerings. Notice that. And shall make them of pure gold. And you shall, you shall set the bread of the presence on the table before me regularly. Notice that. Now turn over to Exodus. Keep your finger here because we're going to flip back and forth a couple times. Exodus chapter 24. Sorry, did I say? Yeah, sorry. Leviticus, thank you. Leviticus chapter 24. In verse number five, I'll give you just a minute till I hear the pages stop. 24 of Leviticus, verse five. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord, and you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons. And they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. We pause there for a moment. And I want you to consider in your mind's eye, again, we're in this beautiful tent and we, we get the opportunity what, that no one got to do and we, we pull the veil back and we step into this place called the holiest of holies. And in this holiest of holies place, there was two pieces of furniture. You might go, if you know your Bible, wait, 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 wait. Well, there were, there were two pieces of furniture in that place. One was called the ark and the other was called the mercy seat. Remember it? Okay, the ark was a wooden box. We got to just, for sake of understanding this picture here, we've got to just quickly understand what these materials teach us. Okay, this wooden box, it was called acacia wood or it was shittim wood. They actually nicknamed it ironwood because it was like incorruptible, this wood. It was like a cedar. That's the closest I think that we have. You know, we make uh, fences and we make siding out of cedar because it can weather for many, many years. I was in construction and we use that on exterior purposes because, because it holds up to the elements for a long, long time. It has a lot of resin in it. And so this acacia wood, for just again, I'm going to buzz through this quick, but this acacia wood pictures the incorruptible humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I just want you to lay hold of that for a minute. Now, this box, this wooden box, we read in, back in Exodus, now they would do something important with it. They would overlay it with what? What did we read? Pure gold. What do you think gold pictures in the scriptures? Any ideas? If, if the wood is his humanity, we talked about that he was perfectly what and what? He was perfectly man and perfectly what? God. Right? Perfectly man and perfectly God. And so he would see this wooden box overlaid with gold. And they say that box that was, you know, 3,500 years old, they believe that if they found it today, it would be in fine shape. Because that acacia wood is so incorruptible, then by the time you overlay it with gold, it would be like as good as new today. Oh, it's a picture. You see, and inside of that, 
there were three uh, instruments, there were three symbols that were placed in there. We don't have time to consider it all, but it was Aaron's rod that budded. It was a pot of manna, a golden pot of manna, and there were two tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments of God. And I just mentioned that because that helps us understand what this second piece of furniture was. You see, the second piece of furniture was a gold lid, we could call it, called the mercy seat. And above it, hammered, and I would have loved these, Aholiab and Bezalel, I would have loved to met these guys. I've been a craftsman for many years. And a guy that can take a solid piece of gold and hammer out of it two cherubim that were outstretched arms like this, that was a skilled man. But he was skilled by the Spirit, it tells us, these guys. And these these cherubim, they sat over this mercy seat with their arms, their wings stretched out, and they peered down into this box, and they were looking at the, the law of God. It was an amazing story. And one time a year, one man would appear, and not without blood. He would come with the blood of a bull, and he would approach the presence of God. You see, above that, those cherubim, what was Shekinah glory, the very glory of God dwelled. I think it's Psalm 99 that says he is enthroned, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is enthroned above the cherubim and the presence of God would come down and take its seat right there. And this man, this high priest who is gonna be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, he would come in once a year with this blood and he would come in and he would sprinkle it on top of this lid. What was he doing? Oh, it's such a picture. You see, these chairs, they were symbolic of God's judgment, his wrath. And peering down at that law, seeing that law, and holding you and I accountable, any who would break that law. Anybody here that is guilty of that? And that man would come in once a year and he would sprinkle on top of that mercy seat. He would sprinkle blood. That's why it was called an atonement covering is actually the real word. To cover. So instead of seeing your and I infraction of the law, upholding the, the perfection of that law, he now saw blood. And that, that, that seat became known as the mercy seat. See, what I want you to understand about this, and it's going to be important for our little study of this table, because they're very similar in nature. This box speaks of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, perfect humanity and deity. In him dwelled the office of the prophet, priest, and king. That's what those three symbols uh, reveal to us. The person of the Lord Jesus Christ, human and God. You see, but the lid that went on top, it pictured the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was a work, that work beyond that veil, that was a work of atonement and mercy. By way of the Lord Jesus Christ's blood, he went in with his own blood 2,000 years ago. You see, when he hung from Calvary, and he said, it is finished, and his blood was shed, Hebrews tells us he went in and that's the picture going on here, guys. You've got to understand that, a, that this tent is just a passion play of a greater reality. So you take this tent, and it's like you, you, if, we could, if we could lift it up this way. So now we're looking at like, here's a veil. Here's the one-third up here. This is where the glory of God dwells. This is where the dwelling place of God is at. It's heaven. Down here is the earth. And this inner place right here is a place that we would call like somewhere between heaven and earth, right? Do you see that? Does that make sense? And so the Lord Jesus went in with his own blood once for all. Because of your sin, because of the law that had been broken for all of us, he walks into that holy place with his own blood into the presence of God the Father and he sprinkles it on that real mercy seat, whatever that is. And one day we get to see it there's something in heaven where he did this very work and that blood is still there. Whenever I sin, and I do all the time, I have an advocate with the Father. 
the man, Christ Jesus, and he is pleading my case on behalf of me. Whenever I sin and the accuser of the brethren comes along and says, you see what he did? And it's as if my defense attorney says, you see the blood? It's still there. He's still there. Forgiven. Forgiven. And it's still there. 2,000 years later, the blood is still in the holy place in heaven, sprinkled there on my behalf. And there's forgiveness. And I know it. And so that's the story of this little, this little box right here. It's the story of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But this is a work of atonement and mercy. But now we step out into this place. And there's three instruments. There's three uh, uh, pieces of furniture in this place. And I want you to notice them, guys. Oh, it's so amazing. I ask, you know, we're the, we, we, we see in the Bible that we're saved unto a priesthood. Peter tells us this. A royal and a holy priest. I think Kurt might have uh, quoted that. That we're saved unto a priesthood. I ask, as a, as a priest today, what does your priesthood mean? How do you operate as a priest unto the Lord Jesus Christ? What does that mean for you? See, and we step out into this place. Again, this is a place that is kind of heaven between heaven and earth. We're called out of the world, but we're not quite in heaven physically yet. And we live and abide in this place. And we're called to serve and minister in this place. And we come into this place. And on this side over here, here's this lampstand. Well, let me just show you something about this lampstand. Oh, there's the pictures here are so profound. But do you know that lampstand? It had seven arms. I can't really do it. Seven arms. Seven arms. There we go. Seven arms. And if you count it, so there's one middle arm and then three branches that turned into six on each, uh, three on each side. In each one of those arms, it says there was a, a calyx, a, a knob, and a branch, or a, a, a cup. And you're like, well, what is it? It was an olive. It was a picture of an olive tree. And there was nine of them on this branch, nine of them on this branch, nine of them on this branch. And then these three over here, nine, nine, and nine. You go, Josh, where are you going with this? Nine, 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 nine. The one in the middle, there was 12. You go back and I'll leave it up to you to count it. But what I just showed you is there was this thing in the holy place that had 66 parts to it. Okay, you follow me here? We could even get crazier. On this side, these three in the middle, there were 39 parts. And on this side, there's 27, 999. What is that, Josh? And, and, and every day, listen, and every day, this priest had to come in and it says morning and evening, he had to tend to this thing. Never let it go out. This was solid gold, all the work of God, that it gave light in this place. And every day they had to come in, morning and evening, you see 66 parts. How many books are in the Bible? 66. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. Huh. That guy that wrote that was pretty smart. And they had to come into this place, and morning and evening they had to tend to this. But it was always written in a way where it wasn't just tending to the oil, but it was also this piece of furniture right here. You see, this piece of furniture was called the altar of incense. And it was always morning and evening. You go fill the oil, trim the wicks, and tend to the incense. Incense and oil. Incense and oil. Well, we don't have to go very far. It's in Revelation chapter 8, where we read the incense is the, who can quote it? the prayers of the saints. So I say, well, what is your believer priesthood? Well, it starts right there. It's tending to that morning and evening. Don't let it go out. Don't let it go out. But we've left out this last one for a good reason here. Because this table over here that was set in the presence of the Lord the bread of the presence, lechem panim in the Hebrew, literally means the bread of the presence. We read that this is a table, a wooden table. Again, just a, you're going to see very similar 
to that box inside, a wooden table, acacia wood, shittim wood, overlaid with gold. Again, it's going to tell us of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll see the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in this, but then the story gets really cool. Because then what they had to do once a week, turn there and read it with me again in Leviticus. Leviticus, I want you to read it for yourselves. Leviticus 24, verse 6. He's speaking of these 12 loaves of bread. Remember, there was a drink offering on this table also. You shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Now listen to this part. Once a week, again, morning and evening, the lamp and the altar of incense. Don't let it go out. You tend constantly to these two. But then once a week, you come to this table. And on it was bread and a cup of wine. Once a week. And we read, chapter, verse 8, Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be, listen to this point, guys, and it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offerings, a perpetual due. What did we just read there? Once a week, they would come into this place. This is biblical precedence. And that bread and that cup was set on that table. And the high priest was on one side. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, then his sons, Nadab, Abihu, Ithamar, and Eleazar, that's us. Okay, and, then, and I'm just, fast forward, I'm just bombing you with a lot of facts here. But that pictures the, 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 the offspring of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's us. And they would come together in the presence of the Lord once a week, and they would break bread. Oh, that is beautiful. Now, where are we going with this in this aspect, this idea of oneness? Because this, well, a little more typology here. So in Leviticus there, if you're there, no words in this are ever an accident. You've got to pay attention. When you're, when you're studying biblical types, you have to pay close attention to every word. Listen to what it says in verse 5. And you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. Then he says this, bizarre. You shall set them in two piles or two rows is the idea. Six in a pile. Six in a row. And you could easily read over that and go, oh, okay, well, that's... Until you start to understand numerology, numbers in the Bible. And, and as a good student of the word, I hope you know your numbers. Six in the, in the Bible is what? Very clearly. Who knows? Is the number of who? Who's, who said it? Of man. Yes. Very clearly. Six, the number of man. We're going, okay. Two, this is a little more obscure one. Who knows the number two in the Bible? That's a harder one. Anybody? Two is the number of witness on the basis of two or three witnesses. It's the number of witness. Okay, now this bread that's set on the table, I don't have to make a very hard case to prove to you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the bread, right? I mean, John 6, right? I would just, we go to John 6 and we know that that bread, that bread is Christ. But what is this man in witness idea? Well, just think about it. Does God have two human witnesses on the earth? Are there two groups of people that have been called to be the witnesses on the earth? What's the first one? We go back to the Old Testament. They were the original testimony, right? Who is it? 
the first original testimony. What was, in other words, I'll just say Israel. What was their call? What were they to be? They were to be the light unto the nations. And I would say they punted though. They took what God gave and they hid it under a basket. This is mine. They failed that. But that doesn't change the fact that they were to be God's witness in the earth. Who's the second? If that's the first group, who's the second lampstand, the witness on the earth? The church. Absolutely. Now you look at this and go, why would the church be described as the bread? Christ is the bread, right? Why would the church be described as the bread? Let me read you a verse. We read it earlier. You don't have to turn there. But listen to this verse. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it's... If I can get it here. We're talking about oneness. Listen to this verse. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we could start in 16. Cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Do you hear what he said? Let me repeat it again. Because there is one bread, that's Christ, we, you, me, who are many, are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. To back this up, we could go a little further in, in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 12, listen to this. Verse 12, this is a really bizarre one. This one's like, you read it the first time, you're like, what? For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with the Christ. Do you hear what he just said there? Christian, he just called you the Christ. Listen to it again. Just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with the Christ. In other words, that bread that symbolizes Christ symbolizes us also. And when they came into that table, well, actually, let's take it to the New Testament. When the New Testament church gathered, turn to Acts 20. Acts chapter 20, <clears throat> verse 5, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days, okay? Don't miss this next line. On the first day of the week, when we gathered together to sing songs, when we gathered together to hear a sermon preached, when we gather together, to, now don't, the very next story, Paul begins preaching and he goes all the way into midnight. So I'm not undermining that reality. But the intention, the intent of the gathering of the church, when the, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread, period, this was their reason to be. Why? Because brothers and sisters, this is how you and I grow in oneness. Brother Josh stands up and preaches a humdinger message. We praise the Lord for it, but guess what? We're not one in that message. A brother stands up and prays. We're not one in that. Uh, we sing a song. We're not one in that. But when we come back, remember this table, this wooden table overlaid with gold, picturing the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And on it, just like in that holy place, the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, that work was a work of mercy and atonement. And I thank God for that work. But let me tell you something. I'm thankful that that isn't all of the work. 
because this table out here, once a week they came to remember, to remind themselves of what brings them together, what unifies them, and they come to this table, the table, a wood table overlaid with gold, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, but set on top of it, set on top of that table were these 12 loaves that pictured me and Christ being one now. And in so, they would come, and in the Old Testament, they didn't realize what they were doing, but they would come once a week and in the presence of God, they would take this bread in themselves, signifying what Paul tells us in Romans, or, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that we symbolically say, look, we have so many things not in common. We are, we are like, I even think, I was thinking about Josh and I, apart from Christ, or brother Nathan, the guy's a doctor. I'm a dumb FedEx driver. I have nothing, literally. Like, if it was not for Christ, I have nothing in common. He's an Indian. I'm a white dude from Omaha. Brother OJ, the black guy from Jamaica. But let me tell you something. The... The thing in this world that has become my greatest, my greatest passion, my greatest joy, my greatest affection, the most important thing in this world to me. I know it's the same thing to my brother Josh. It's the same thing. And we come back to this table and we say, look, see, it's symbolic. There was a point, October 12, 2000, for me, I took of that real bread and I ate of it and it went in me. And he took of the same. And we now have one source and we are one. And brothers and sisters, we come back to this table week after week for the purpose to break bread it is our sole function to be. And everything plays second fiddle to that because it constantly reminds us in this world of divisiveness and division and disunity, it's the one thing that says to me, brother, you and I have one source and it's him. And so how do we grow in this in this oneness together, we just keep coming back to the table. We keep coming back to this table of, see again, that, that was a picture, that was the work of the Lord Jesus Christ of atonement and mercy. This is a table, again, the person of the wood, the wood and the gold, but on it is the work. But this is a work of fellowship now that my high priest is there and here I am and my brother is right here with me and we come together and we seek him and we seek to know him and this is the burning passion of our heart together. I want to change a little bit direction, but I also want to be a little mindful. We're shooting for six, 5.30. Just somebody throw me something out so I have a little bit of a... Ladies with food? We planned food to be flexible. The food we're serving. Just to flexible. Ah, man, you guys kill me. All right, well. So, so this, this work here that we see and this memorial feast that unites us, the one thing... Where does its power come from? How does it have the ability now to do this work of oneness in me? And I want to change directions a little bit. So we're going, to sec we're going to send it into second gear here now. And I want to go back to the Gospels and I want to show you something that has been such a, it's been such a blessing to me. Turn back in your Bibles to the book of John. We'll start there. That was first gear, yep. 
Yeah, that was first gear, man. We're, st we're, we're hitting into the overdrive. I'm not tired. <laughs> John chapter three, that was a little inside joke. John chapter, brother Micah. John chapter three, very, very famous, very familiar, probably the most famous Bible verse ever written quoted here. But I want you to see in John chapter three, we're gonna look at the power of the cross. I want you to see the power of the cross actively at work in our lives. That's the purpose of this, of this table. We come back to the cross. That's where the power of God is found. But in this story, we see in verse one, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a, a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Nicodemus said to him, I just, this question haunts me. How can these things be? And I just paused on that. You know, this man, the, you, you got to understand, like when I was in Israel, the one thing, you know, not, one of the things I came home from was the depths that these people are entrenched in human religion. The depths of it. You think you got religion? I'm here to tell you these people have 10 times more. Everything of their life was dictated. What they eat, what they do, on what days they could do this, where they could say, where they could go, how far they could go. Everything about their life. You go to Israel, it's crazy, man. You can tell who's who by the size of the hats they wear. Like the bigger the hat, the more spiritual they are or something. These guys are walking around these big black sombrero furry looking things. You're like, what in the world is that? That's them. They're showing you. They, they take these big black boxes. They take, you know, writing it on their forehead, literal. And you get these big black boxes. And it's like a competition. Who can have the bigger box? Look at how spiritual I am. My big box. These guys, man, they have religion steeped upon religion, steeped upon religion. And this man wasn't just a, a common religious dude. He was a ruler and a teacher of the Jews. And the Lord Jesus comes alongside of him, pricking him right to the heart. We know that you're a teacher. And the Lord goes right around it, right to the heart. Nicodemus, unless you're born again, or the word literally means to be born from above, you will never see the kingdom of God. <gasps> and that, question of how, how can these things be? To just hover on that for a second, that this man in all of his religion, striving and striving and running on the hamster wheel and burning the incense and keeping all the holy days and, the, and all the regulations and all of it, it led to nothing. He said, you have to have a new birth. Nicodemus, there has to be a new power taking over in your heart. And we know in this story that Nicodemus goes away. Just you can imagine in the night, he comes in and he goes away with his head hung low. Like how can this be? And he disappears off the scene for quite some time. We don't hear of him or see of him till the end of this story. But before we go to his story, I'm going to tell you the tale of two stories here for a second. And I'm going to paint, I want to show you two groups that were around or at the cross or near the cross. Okay, turn in your Bibles, turn back now to Matthew chapter 26. It's hard with this wind. Matthew chapter 26 and verse number 30, read this little account. This is just, I mean, they're, they're going down into the garden. 
They're going out to the Mount of Olives in verse 31. Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. So think about these guys a second. This is like the inner band. And and Peter, James, and John were like the inner, inner band. Like not only did they see the the miracles, uh, Brother Josh and I were talking about last night at the end of uh, the book of John where it said, you know, if all the works had been done, if all the works were recorded, the volumes of the books of, of, how does it go? The the volume of books could not contain all the works that had been done. Meaning like this guy's life was a constant miracle. These boys saw men who were born without the ability to use their legs And the Lord comes along and says, rise up and walk. He jumps up. I mean, he saw, they saw a man who had been in the tomb for four days. Lazarus, come out. And all of a sudden he comes walking out in his grave clothes. They saw men that were blind and received their sight. And they said, who, who, how has it ever been said that a man has been given his sight back that he, he made? makes men see who's ever heard of such a thing the leprous healed the the storms on the sea where they all thought they were dead men and all the lord just down sleeping in the boat and they watched him calm the storms that even the wind and the waves obey him i just i just ask you to think about what these guys saw up to this point. And what did it do for them? Okay, read on with me. We're in verse 47 now. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. So we know this story. Judas brings this band of, of criminals to come and lay hold of the Lord. The Lord says in verse 50, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and he seized them. 52, when Jesus, uh, or sorry, 51, and behold, one of the, those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Now, one of the other gospels tells him that he reaches down and he says, be healed. And he heals this literally right at the last moment. The disciples are all out there with him and he just watched, the, he just watched him heal this man's ear. And then we read this in verse 56. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Gone into the night. All that they had seen, all these miraculous works of God, what did it do for them? They all fled. Now let me show you another little, this is group A. This is what we're going to call the good guys. These were the inner, this was his close friends, the good guys, gone into the night. Now I want to show you another group. We're still in Matthew. Look at chapter 27, turn a page over in verse number 45. 45 says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. Uh, And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink. Okay, skip down to verse uh, 51. And behold, The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs were opened, 
And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, truly this was the son of God. Okay, we'll come back on that for a few comments in a second. Turn over to Luke 23. Again, we're, 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 we're building a, a band of people here. These are the bad guys. Okay, we saw the good guys. Watch the bad guys now. Luke 23. <clears throat> and verse, uh, I think we're in 35 here. <clears throat> yep, 35. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself as he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was an inscription over him. This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. One more passage in John chapter 19. We're coming back to our friend Nicodemus here with his, with his uh, buddy Joseph of Arimathea. <clears throat> this is after the Lord has died now. <clears throat> and we're in verse... Uh, oh, so. Verse number 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So what is the point with all this? So back to our original little band of misfits, these, uh, these disciples, as the, the curtain began to fall, as the, the walls began to cr uh, collapse and fall in around them, seeing three, three and a half years of miracle after miracle after miracle. And when the time came, when the test of their faith came, scattered to the night. But this other group, again, I call them kind of the, the bad guys, the, the, the ruffians, the criminals. I mean, these were the guys that just put the Lord to death. So you have, you have this centurion at the foot of the cross. You have uh, this criminal at the cross. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, they were the convicting party, would have had to been there to witness. See, they stood and watched something unbelievable happen. Back to this centurion a second. I want you to just think about this guy. These guys, this was a Roman agent of death. This was, a, this was a professional murderer. He would have been a cold, hardened 
man. How many thousands, how many thousands of men do you think he watched hanging on the cross and dying there in that place? And what we read, we read back in Matthew, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe. One of the other gospels said, and seeing the way that he died, he watched at the foot of the cross. He watched this one die. And if I could paraphrase, he said, I've never seen anyone die like this before. Well, the man gave up his own ghost. He released himself in his way, in his own authority. And the moment he did it, the earth shook. And as he watched this, he falls to his knees. This was the son of God. Guys, I just want you to see the power that's being put on display right there. In this hardened Man. You see, the second story was these two criminals, one on the right hand, one on the left. And they're hanging there, dying justly, he says, for our sins and for his own sins. And at some moment, he sees the same thing the centurion does. He says, You fool! Oh, listen to this man's testimony. You want to hear the most beautiful gospel message ever written? We are receiving for what we have justly done. We deserve this. Listen, Christian, if you're here today, it's because you at one moment said to God, I deserve to be up here. I deserve to be on this cross. And every one of us, that cross was ours. I deserve this. And he looked over at this man Now think about what he says. He saw, Lord, here's a man who is dying. He's in the process of dying on a cross. You can't get any weaker than that. And this man looks and says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, he just said, this is God right here. Again, these disciples that all fled to the night, they didn't learn that through all these miracles. Nicodemus couldn't learn it through all of his religion. And we see the story of Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea. Again, it says of Joseph of Arimathea, he was a, he was a follower of the Lord, but in private. Yeah, he feared the Jews. And, he, and I think maybe Nicodemus maybe would have been the same. I don't know. But I'll tell you what when those close followers of the Lord, when all, everything was falling apart around them and they were like, it's it, it's over. We're done, man, let's run and get out of here. Skip town. It was in that moment that Nicodemus takes off this Pharisee headdress, basically, and he steps out of the shadows. Nicodemus, you imagine his friends, the fellow Pharisees, what are you doing? Nicodemus, and it says he went to Pilate and he, they, Joseph begged for the body of Jesus stepping out and literally laying that down, that pharisaical headdress symbolically saying, I'm leaving it and I want him. Guys, I just want you to understand the power in that. Now, I don't get to go back to the cross 2,000 years ago and physically stand there like those three groups of people did. I don't get to do that physically. I didn't get the privilege of being there, standing in the crowd and watching. This is God. But I get to go every week, once a week, and we come back. Do you remember what it says about them boys on the road to Emmaus? 
When was it that they saw him? When they broke the bread, when he broke the bread. And I get to go back to the table that he has set for me in his presence that points me back to the cross where I'm transformed. Listen, I will unashamedly tell you, unashamedly, I have spent long years in the barren wasteland of my Christian existence. I'm ashamed of that, so that's a shame. But let me tell you what, and I mean what I mean by that is there has been times that even the simple things of reading my Bible, I will go weeks, I had gone weeks, months, even years this Bible sitting on the table, on my shelf, oops, collecting dust. But I'll tell you what, the Spirit of God held my feet over the fire that I never, I never, ever wanted to come to that table empty-handed. And the Lord in his mercy and his grace. And you ask my wife the embarrassment of a Christian that I was for so many years. It'd be Sunday morning and it'd be 20 minutes before meeting and it's like, Lord, (laughs) I haven't even read once this week. But I I I don't want to come empty hand. And I would, for 20 minutes... And the Lord would give me just a precious thought of himself. And I would grow even in, even in the most barren wasteland of my Christian existence. And I will tell you, I am unashamed that the purpose of that table, see, he doesn't need us to come, good job, Lord. Guys, it's for us. And I watched, even in that wasteland, him transforming me. Because I come back to this table. And I hear the Lord say, 1 Corinthians 11, let a man examine himself. Oh, man. And then eat. It's not let a man examine himself and then go say seven rosaries and 10 Hail Marys and burn a bunch of incense. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a a contrite heart. And I would come back to the table. Lord, I don't deserve to be here. And he would say, you're right, forgiven. And you see them, they don't deserve it either. And we come together and we are one forgiven, accepted in the beloved, and I come back and I go, he's forgiven me again. And I am accepted in him. And you think I can pick up any stones and throw it against any of the brothers of my meeting? See, this is where we are brought together in oneness now. Because who am I? I'm the man forgiven of 10,000 talents. How can I not forgive my brother of one, what is it, shekel? Mina or whatever. How can I not forgive my brother? This is where true oneness is found. We come back to this table week after week after week and together we find acceptance, co-union, co-union with our head together in fellowship. And that is the power of the cross. Again, I didn't get the liberty, I didn't get the luxury 2,000 years ago to stand there, but I get to every week. I get to listen to the brothers as they open up the word. And sisters, let me challenge you right now. Don't think you're left out of this, please. You know, in the, it, again, we could look at the types. In, the, in the, uh, the peace offering, it was the men who had to come and bring the heave and the wave offering. They would publicly before the Lord say, look at this offering that has made peace between God and I. But all would come with an offering. 
Women, listen, you want to be a part of a meeting, a remembrance meeting that is straight fire? Everyone come with a thought to quietly lay at the feet of the Lord and say, Lord, this is what I'm worshiping and remembering you for this morning in the quiet of your heart. If there is a body that is exercised in that way, again, you will see a remember, you will see a remembrance meeting that is fire. It's fire. And so again, I didn't get the liberty, the luxury to go back and be there at the foot of the cross, but I get to every week go back to that table and I find acceptance, I find unity, and I find oneness continually over and over. And it is the thing, it is the thing that binds us together. <sighs> Father, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you for this miracle of this body that you have brought us into. <sighs> we thank you for this, Lord, that that you didn't just save us. You didn't do just, just this work of atonement and mercy that we see here. But Lord, the work was so much greater. It was a work of communion and fellowship. You've created us unto a relationship unto yourself. Again, Lord, we've been thinking about already to be one. Whoa, I, I, Lord, I just, I will confess, I will confess. I don't understand it. Uh, I don't at times feel it. I don't feel one with you. I don't feel one with the body at times. There are times, Lord, I think I do, but at times I don't feel it, and yet I know what the scriptures tell me. And because of that, I lay hold, and I hang on so tight that we are one. And Lord, we're so grateful. We're so grateful for our great head, the one who has bought and redeemed us by his precious blood and he has now invited us into this tremendous story. Thank you for this time, Lord. I pray that something would be profitable. There's something that would be said here. Lord, there's always the danger of uh, man's opinion and I just, I, I pray that you would guard our hearts of any opinions of men but that would only would be said and spoken and heard especially would be words from your mouth. And so we commit this time now to you, we pray in your name, amen.